Good morning. It's great to see you today on this second Sunday of the new year. Hope you've had a good Reyes weekend. We had a beautiful wedding here today, uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, the ones we've been greeting for the last three Sundays, Shegun and Yufei. We actually tied the knot yesterday, and it was a lovely time bringing two continents together, China and Africa. Well, not that China's a continent, but anyway, you know what I mean. Okay, so we are aiming toward understanding God better in the new year, are we not? Okay, if you say so, Pastor. <laughs> I, got, I caught the attitude there. We need to understand better God and His ways in the new year. And if we're going to do that, it means we're going to have to get comfortable with paradox, right? Not talking about a paradox, but a paradox. Yeah? Apparent contradiction. Hard to grasp at first, anyway. You know, it may even feel a little bit sometimes like trying to learn higher math. Not just talking about geometry and algebra, but like trigonometry and calculus, number theory, topology, mathematical reasoning. You know, that really tough stuff. So to understand God, do I have to understand higher math? It's not what I said, was it? Not what I meant. We're just making a comparison here. Mm, higher math is above me. So I understand God's ways are above me. In fact, Isaiah said it better than I could. Remember this passage from Isaiah? Why don't we read that together just to recall what Isaiah said from God. Ready? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay. You know, that tells us that we have a lot to learn if we're going to tune in to God's view of life. His view is reality, isn't it? Can we understand it in those terms? His view is reality. Our view falls so short. We need to tune in to His view. He's literally dealing in a kind of higher kind of math than we could ever even imagine. Mm. In fact, that's why God's Truth so often has to be expressed in terms of paradox. You know what I'm talking about here. Like, the first shall be last, and the last first. Oh, yeah? Is that the way it works in life? Or is it the whoever can elbow hardest gets to be first? Or how about the one that says, to save your life, you have to lose it. That's pure gospel. Do you understand it? Or the Beatitudes that Jesus expressed. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the, those who are mourn, the persecuted. Do you understand why they are blessed? Are you with me here? 
Or how about what the Apostle Paul says, that we have to fix our eyes on what you can't see? Uh-huh. Do you do that every day? Or he says, we boast in our weaknesses. Is that your habit? Hey, this is a higher math. This is a higher level of reasoning than what we usually operate on, isn't it? Mm. Who can understand this logic? But actually, he has brought it near, hasn't he? In his word, in his spirit, and especially in the paradox of the word made flesh. There's a paradox for you. Stare into that one a long time what we need to do in this new year. So where would you begin if you were Jesus starting out his ministry, introducing himself to public Jewish society? Where would you have begun? Or let's rephrase that. Where did the Jews expect their Messiah to first show up? Where were they hoping he would show up. I'll tell you, probably by attacking the fortress of Antonia right there in Jerusalem, the military control point of Roman power among the Jews. They hated that place. And if the Messiah showed up there, they would believe in him immediately, getting rid of that sore spot. But where did Jesus actually strike first? You remember, according to John's Gospel, chapter 2, it was at the religious nerve center of Jewish identity, the religious power structure at the temple. They were not expecting this, not of their Messiah. Striking at the temple first? What sense did that make? Cleansing the temple as we read about just a moment ago in John 2, was a very bold move on Jesus' part. This was his introduction to the Jewish people. The court of Gentiles, you know, that area surrounding the inner courts was where those marketeers had set up their stalls to sell the animals that were required for sacrifices. The bankers were there to change people's secular money into the temple coinage that was required. And those bankers, not speaking bad about bankers in general, just saying that these bankers, they were cheating people right and left, overcharging, giving a bad exchange rate. In effect, they were turning that temple into one big lucrative business for themselves and for the religious leaders who gave them permission to be there. So what happened? Well, Jesus charged into that scene as if he were the owner. Oh, he was the owner, huh? Okay, yeah, you're right. Overturning tables, driving out both the animals and their sellers, cleansing the temple of all that corruption, and telling them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. What a beginning. Remember, this is his introduction to Jewish society. Well, of course, biblical critics have a heyday with this passage. 
They say, oh, John has just relocated this story here for dramatic effect. Because we know from the synoptics, you know, that's mm, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah. That this was really, this really happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. It was his crowning act of judgment on the Jews. It's probably what provoked the crucifixion. So what John writes about is really the same incident, they say. It's just that John has rearranged it for literary reasons. Do you buy this? It is not at all a fair assessment of John's text. Look at it closely with me, if you will, in John chapter 2. There are multiple indicators in this text that John is actually reporting faithfully how Jesus introduced himself to Jewish public life in Jerusalem. For example, there's that conversation that followed his cleansing of the temple. The Jews were overwhelmed, and they said to him, well, what miraculous sign will you do to prove you have this kind of authority? You remember Jesus' answer? It's right there. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. That saying does not appear in the synoptics. It's a very strong saying. It's going to be repeated later in the trials of Jesus' crucifixion, in, in the book of Acts. doesn't show up in the synoptics when Jesus cleanses the temple. Nor do Jesus' sayings in the synoptics show up in John. Why not? They're reporting different events different moments in Jesus' ministry. In fact, then comes the part about how long the temple has taken to be built. Actually, what they're talking about is the repair work that has been going on since the year 20 B.C. Herod the Great was the one who started it. That would be 46 years, they said. That would put us in the year 26 A.D. right now. That's the beginning of Jesus' ministry as we well know. Whereas what the synoptics are reporting is clearly at the end of Jesus' ministry, 29 to 30 A.D., depending on how you determine that final year. You see, these gospel writers had too much respect for what really happened to take these events and just switch them around randomly to suit some arbitrary criteria. The gospel writers were after truth. And I hope you are too. Truth still matters, even though they say we live in the post-truth era. You see, this was the Pharisees and the Sadducees' problem. They were no longer interested in truth. Truth was relative. All depended on who said it, under what circumstances, to what audience, etc. Truth was relative. So all they were interested in was winning, beating the opponent, getting the advantage, getting ahead. I beg you, young people, I speak to you especially, don't let this happen to you. The truth is, and Jesus Christ embodied it. He's the one you can count on to lead you into all the truth. So, the temple of Jerusalem was supposed to be the most sacred place in Israel or even in the whole world. 
It represented God's presence in the midst of his people. God's message of light and hope to the nations. At least that was what was in God's heart. And yet God's people were treating his temple as if it belonged to them. As if they could act however they pleased. Do whatever they chose. Cheat their fellow human beings right under God's nose. Act as if they were the final authority. Believing themselves to be the moral majority. They thought they were the true gods of the temple. They'd have the last word. It was just that simple. Did you get it? Okay, they had corrupted the sacred place. They had desecrated God's holy temple. And so what does Jesus turn around and do? He claims right here in front of all of them, in effect, that his body is the real temple, the real place of worship and reconciliation with God. That's what he's claiming here. They don't have ears to hear him, but they will have the will to destroy that temple, won't they? Yes, those were prophetic words. And in the process of that worst of all human crimes, I hope you're with me here, Jesus would declare and act out our total forgiveness, God's forgiveness for us. And he would finish establishing the kingdom where you and I can finally be victorious over sin. That's what he was doing on the cross. You realize that, don't you? Acting out, declaring and acting out our forgiveness and establishing that kingdom, the reign of God in human flesh so that you and I could be received into that kingdom. He was living it out. And then on the third day, he was raised, just like he promised, the temple restored. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, will later take this metaphor to its next logical conclusion. Now, it's your body that's a temple. Are you aware of that? The temple was supposed to be a holy place. What does that say about your temple? Also, supposed to be a holy place, right? Remember Paul's words, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? That God's Spirit lives in you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Obviously, Jesus was supposed to be Lord of that temple and of your temple and mine. The problem is a lot of times we act just like those Pharisees and Sadducees as if we were the Lord of the temple, our temple, as if it were our own temple. The thing is, the Lord of the temple will not force the entrance to your temple. Really, the beginning of life is to let him cleanse your temple. We see in his ministry, in order to reveal himself, to the world that he had come to save, he had to clean, cleanse that temple. It was a hugely prophetic act. And he would repeat it at the end of his ministry, the week of his crucifixion. 
And that surely did set up the big confrontation in which he would give the maximum revelation of himself there on the cross. Well, in the same way, God cannot reveal himself fully to you unless you let Jesus first cleanse the temple of your life. It's the first priority. It's where we begin in discipleship. Are you serious about discipleship this year? Jesus would like for you to be. He's inviting you. The God of the universe, the God who created you, is inviting you to take him seriously in his invitation to follow him in this new year. So in this series that we began last week on growing toward mature discipleship, we begin by trying to set true priorities for this new year. And I hope you will not hear me just inviting you to establish some New Year's resolutions, which are always broken by the second week, right? Not what we're trying to do here. Actually, I'm inviting you to make the conscious decision to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, adjusting all your earthly pursuits to His eternal perspective. Well, we got to realize that that always begins with confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Letting Jesus cleanse the temple. Saying yes to his priorities when I see how far short mine fall. My priorities, oh, if I could just live well and be comfortable and make it through, uh, I'd be happy. Wow. You would settle for that when God wants to show you his glory? Okay, I can't tell. It's hard to read this audience this morning. Too cloudy, too foggy, too cold and rainy. I hope you're with me here. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to let junk accumulate in my temple. Just like, just like in our homes. Doesn't this happen to you? The junk that accumulates, I don't know, behind the door or in the closet or under the bed or on the desk. Or maybe it's your computer. The junk that accumulates in your computer or on your phone in our minds. How crowded. About out of space, here or here? Or both? Because of all the junk that accumulates. So what does your junk look like? Come on now, be honest. What does your junk look like? Well, maybe we're not thinking on the same level. I'm trying to get to God's higher math here, okay? Mm, sometimes it looks like unkind thoughts or judgmental words or wasting time on unworthy pursuits or maybe it's just outright idolizing image tweaking my image or idolizing clothes or other material things or entertainment or your job or your studies or who knows what you tend to idolize but we all have those things that accumulate in our lives that become like the junk in our temple and we tend to act like those religious leaders Treating this temple as if it were ours, 
We're the God of our own temple. Hey, no, you're not. Quit acting like it. Martin Luther put it well when he said, we never break any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking the first one. Okay, you can tell me what the first one was. You shall have no other gods before me. All right. And yet we do. So many false gods that just, they creep in, you know. It's, it's a creeping thing. We don't mean for it to happen. It just slips in our back door. It's cultural assimilation. So we got to go to God's Word. And when we go to God's Word, we find the priorities that should be characterizing our lives every day. The Jews repeated it daily. It was their creed. So how about you try it with me? Shall we say it together? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, the Lord, is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Wow. Do you get the impression that God wanted this to be our divine obsession? Every moment of life, drill it in. Get it in your heads. There is one God and He is worthy of all your love. Does that describe us? Does that describe the passion of our soul? Take a deep breath and be honest. Jesus repeated it, didn't He? In Matthew 22, He gave us the same formula when He was addressed by a, a, an interpreter of the law who wanted to know what's most important. He was really asking Jesus for a summary of His teaching. And what did God give him? Read it with me, if you will. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. There it is. That should be our priority. Jesus said so. Loving him and loving our neighbor as ourself. Wow. Well, there's one more. John interpreted it for us in his gospel. Not, yeah, it's his gospel, his first letter. In his first letter... 1 John 3, 23. Let's read this one together. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. You see, John's just interpreting what Jesus had said. These commandments, they were fleshed out in the whole law, 
And the whole law was actually intended to serve like training wheels on a bicycle, like braces for walking, like guidelines to help people's, people set their sights on the right goals. This was it. This was the most important thing. In fact, it's what we were made for. It's our vocation, our calling in life. And yet that also means that it represents our greatest failure. Because where were we going to fail the most if not in the point where God most wanted us to learn who he is and to love him? Of course, this is what the enemy distracted us from by focusing our attention on us instead of on our maker. So yeah, it's our greatest failure, loving God and loving our neighbor. Theoretically, we know the remedy. We know the remedy has to come from God. We know that it's about making a conscious decision to follow Jesus Christ, grow in our relationship with him, because he was the most radical human being who ever lived, especially when it comes to his cross. But that's why John had to reinterpret Moses and Jesus in a way that we could get it. it. No day in my whole life have I ever loved God as he deserved. Have you? No day in my whole life have I ever loved my neighbor as myself. I am a failure at what God says is most important. Thank God for First John 3.23 because he helps me understand Instead of the command to love God with my whole being, the command, according to John, is now this. Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who did it in our place so that we could learn to do it through Him and in Him. And Jesus, believing in Him is the only way I'm ever going to learn to love my neighbor as myself. Are you with me on this? Jesus is the one who did it. That's why he's the Savior. Okay, so Jesus enfleshes this new vision of life, and it challenges all our natural way of thinking. This is that higher math we've been talking about. It's a new vision that only his spirit can convince us to adopt because this new vision is about taking up a cross and following Jesus as our way of life. Oh, wow, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? The way to life is to take up an instrument of death, a cross. Paradox. The Holy Spirit has to teach us this and convince us of this. Jesus was teaching it all through his life when he talked about Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What do you think he was meaning? Is that just the communion? Bread and wine? No way. It's about nourishing your insides on him. The one who gave himself out of love for you. You nourish your insides on him. Or when Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but he lives in me. Do we get how radical that is? It's pointing to the same thing. Let's listen to some wise words 
from some other serious Christians who have meditated long and hard on this. One of them is named Robert Mulholland. He was a professor of New Testament at Asbury College for years and years. He says, the question is not whether to undertake spiritual formation, which seems to be what I'm inviting you to, right? The question is, what kind of spiritual formation are you already engaged in? You're already doing something. Oh, oh, Pastor, I'm not doing anything. Uh-huh, you are engaged in that. You see, we're already engaged, all of us, in some kind of spiritual formation. The question is, is it effective, what you're doing? Is it taking you where you need to go to become more like Jesus? Well, if it's not, then maybe you need to consider a new kind of spiritual formation. Mm, Dallas Willard is another great thinker that I love to read who challenges me. He says, there is no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. He says, never truer than with our ideas about God. I don't know if you know Jordan Peterson. He's a guy I like to listen to sometimes. Uh, used to be an atheist got converted sometimes I think he's still in process he's deep he says we are prisoners of our own tyrannical misconceptions and misperceptions yeah we are we are prisoners of them our ideas and especially if our ideas about God are off-center not thoroughly biblical then we're in trouble actually Proverbs already said this perfectly Remember the proverb that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts are basically determining how well you negotiate the challenges of this life. So well, what am I supposed to do about it? I better get my thoughts centered on God's thoughts so that he can infect me with his view of life. Yeah. Okay, one more from Dallas Willard. I love this one too. He says, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Have you made that decision? Like the most important thing in my life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Is that, have you made that decision? This is urgent. If you haven't, then God wants to do business with your heart this morning. What Jesus said to do is the most important thing I need to learn. Let's see if the Apostle Paul can help us with this. Because he invites us to consider God's higher math. His ways and thoughts that are so much higher than ours. Sometimes we despair and just say, oh, I'll never be able to reach that. Paul wants to teach us how to count our losses and gains God's way. And in the process of learning that, how to make the goal for our lives, really make this our goal, to become like Jesus in his death. Wow, does that sound counterintuitive or fanatical or what? Like I said, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to have to intervene to help us assimilate this. But you know, I cannot conceive of a serious Christian who has never set 
for himself or for herself the goal of growing to be more like Christ. How can we call ourselves Christians if this is not our serious goal? I'm more impressed with Jesus than I am with anything in this life. I want to grow to be more like him. I'll never be the Apostle Paul. That's not my goal. But in the spheres of influence where God has placed me, I want to become more like Jesus. Do you remember the Pharisees, how they focused their attention on only a part of the biblical message? That was so they could reduce it, reduce its complexity to something a little simpler. You see, they taught lower mathematics. They taught a kind of mathematical righteousness in which you do this much good and you'll be repaid with this much blessing. Oh, wow, we like that kind of math, don't we? Yeah, I do this and God will do that. I got it. This is easy. It's not that simple. It's not the whole story. Haven't you read the book of Job? <laughs> wow. Things certainly didn't work out mathematically for Job, did they? Try the book of Ecclesiastes. It will knock your socks off too. Reinforces the same spirituality. You give and you give and you think, well, God, come on, do your part. Sorry, that is not biblical teaching. That's pharisaical righteousness. According to the Gospels, goodness and righteousness are not mathematical formulas, especially in this fallen world. They'd be more comparable to quantum physics or string theory, if you like. So back to Paul. Here in Philippians 3, the first thing he does, beginning of the chapter, is review his credentials. Look at his assets. Aha, uh -huh. what do I have? He's talking about when he was a Pharisee, what did he have? Oh, he had everything. He had built him up a CV that was enormous, beautiful. And what does he do with it now that he's a believer, a follower of Jesus? Verse 7 tells me. Read it with me, if you will. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Did you get that? Paul tried to establish his own righteousness on the basis of the law. You do this and God will do that. It's all going to work out. Nice balances. Paul said after building up this marvelous curriculum, it's all garbage. I'm throwing all those credentials away. It's a total loss. Cero a la izquierda. It's garbage. It's dung. Well, what, what were those credentials? Oh, prestige. 
Galatians 1, Paul talks about how he was advancing in Judaism beyond all his peers. Oh, he was outdoing them all. He was so zealous for the traditions. Oh, he was spiritual and fiery. Garbage. Power. He had letters of authority to the synagogues of Damascus. They were going to have to obey him. He had power. Garbage. Didn't mean anything. Position. If he was not yet on the Sanhedrin, he was probably the next prime candidate. Sanhedrin, that's the highest body of governing in the Jewish system. Prestige, power, position, garbage. Because now he's found out what his real worth, real profit, is about knowing Jesus and his righteousness. And when you hear that word righteousness, I hope you don't think, ooh, squeaky clean, so clean, clean. No, no, think right relatedness, rightly related to God by his grace, rightly related to fellow man by his love. Right relatedness. It's the result of faith in Christ. In fact, Paul even says here, I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's literally in the text, it's the faith of Christ. His faith has been planted in me, and it bears fruit. Wow, the faith of Jesus is bearing fruit in me. Well, that's what I want too. So see where it takes him next. Goes on in verse 10. Read it with me if you will. I want to know Christ. Yes, and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he wants to know Christ. Hasn't he been a missionary now for 30 years? And he still doesn't know Christ? Uh Uh-uh, you haven't caught it. There is still so much more to know of Christ. Do you follow me? You never finish knowing Christ. He's the eternal God. There are riches and depths in Him. There is joy in Him that you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. Yeah, Paul wants to keep on knowing Christ and the the power of His resurrection. Can you imagine that? That's power, isn't it? To bring somebody back from the dead. And what about the participation in his what? Participating in his sufferings? Do we have to do that too? Mm. Well, Paul did say in Romans 8, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It's interesting, that word participation in his sufferings. In the Greek, it's actually the word koinonia. We know koinonia, don't we? Yeah, fellowship. To have fellowship in his sufferings? Remember, this is divine reasoning, not human reasoning. Like when God said to Isaiah, come let us reason together. He's not talking about your standard human reasoning and logic. Divine reasoning we're invited to tune into. The fellowship, you think of the fellowship of the rings, don't you? Yeah, I know you moviegoers. This is the fellowship of the cross. The fellowship of 
suffering. There's a higher logic at work here that we so often fail to perceive. You know, you and I don't suffer like those who are in mm, Pakistan or India, the Christians I'm talking about, or China, Korea, North Korea. We know those people suffer in a way that just blows our minds. That's higher math. But there is suffering that you and I are also called to as we take seriously God's claim upon our lives. I suffer, don't you? Sometimes I'm not always suffering for Christ. A lot of times I'm just suffering out of my own foolishness. But there is suffering that we do. What do we do with our suffering over your children, over your grandchildren? We give it to the Lord. We give it to Him. Ask Him to somehow use it redemptively as He did His own suffering, which He turned into the greatest blessing that humanity will ever know. Give your suffering to Him. Participate joyfully in whatever suffering He calls you to take on and commit it to Him. Besides, it's helping you to become more like him in his death. What does that mean? Well, ask yourself, what was Jesus like in his death? He was totally forgiving. He did not hold this against anyone. And if he didn't hold that crime against anyone, he's not going to hold any of your sins against you. Do you get the application? He was merciful. He was not vengeful. He was quoting scripture. His mind focused on God's truth. He was representing his father's heart. Patient, loving, caring all the way to the end. And Paul says, speaking of the end, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal. Paul is over 60 years old, but he recognizes Oh, he's still got a ways to go here. So he presses on. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Please think about that. Last week we talked about working out what God has worked in. Well, this week I want us to think about pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. If you belong to Christ, if your life is his, he's the one who took hold of you. Can you remember when it happened? He didn't take hold of you randomly. He did so for a purpose. Your life has purpose and meaning in Jesus Christ. But Paul says, now you have to open your arms, your heart, your mind, and take hold of that for which he took of hold of you. Because if you don't do this consciously, you may miss out on his purpose for you. He doesn't want you to miss out on it. That's why he goes on to say, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. No. He's humble about this. He's going to keep going. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, that doesn't mean he forgets all the lessons he learned. doesn't mean he forgets everything that happened. It means he forgets all the junk that has been in his life that he himself may have committed. Because all the junk in your life will not have the last word on you. Are you hearing this? 
because Jesus stretched out his arms and took all of our junk, he says, your junk will not have the last word on you. I will. Trust him for it. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, that word means stretching, reaching. Do you do your stretches every morning? I do my stretches every morning because if I don't, my muscles and my tendons get stiff. I'm old. <laughs> you need to do your stretches spiritually as well. Stretching, reaching. What is it that stretches you? Loving people? Loving difficult people? Does that stretch you? You bet it does. It's okay. It's good for you. Stretch. Or maybe it's learning new disciplines. Oh, why would I want to learn a new discipline? It will stretch you. Strain toward it. Serving others. Does that stretch you? Sacrificing. Putting away our idols. These things will stretch us. But that's what Paul and the Lord behind him is inviting us to do. Strain toward what is ahead. Stretch toward what is ahead. And what is it? I press on in verse 14. I press on. That word literally, literally means I continue forward. Even if you have to take two steps backwards sometimes to take three steps forward, right? I continue forward toward the goal to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the higher math that is worth pursuing. Will you tune into it this year? Jesus can cleanse every stain. He can fix all the brokenness in our desecrated temples. He can cleanse away hurts, bitterness, anger. He can heal broken relationships, broken hearts. He can even clean up repeat offenders like you and me. He's the true Lord of the temple. Isn't it time we allowed him the throne on our lives. So will you set your sights on this goal for your life this year and believe that this is what God is working for in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God in Christ implants a growth mentality in us through his Holy Spirit. I would call it a spiritual growth hormone. He implants in his children through discipleship to Jesus. That's apprenticeship to Jesus. Jesus wants you to be his apprentice. Because it's the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Think about that and chew on it for a moment. This year. Will you seek to become who Jesus would be if he were me? Let's pray about it for a moment. As you pray, would you talk to God about the junk that has accumulated in your temple that you need to give him? Let him cleanse you. Talk to him in terms of confession. Confession. 
repentance. Lord Jesus, how we confess our failings and shortcomings. We've not lived up to the glory that you call us to. We repent of spending too much time on secondary and tertiary issues. Things that really were not important, Lord, we've given them the wrong value. Oh, teach us your higher math, Lord, that we may see the surpassing worth is in knowing you, drawing near to you, walking with you daily, listening for your voice, your heartbeat, your spirit's call. Blessed Savior, make us truly your disciples this year. We pray it in Jesus' name.